Welcome everyone to our 14th episode of the Genuine Men's Chat Zoom Live. Today's topic is grief, and if you haven't been a part of the Zoom Lives before, let me introduce you to them. Genuine Men is a movement consistent of a show, a podcast, a workshop, and now weekly Zoom Lives since COVID-19 that express the often unheard honest views of men from various backgrounds, cultures, religions, and life experiences. It's also a rare opportunity for men to have a platform to express their views, their thoughts, their perspectives, and obstacles in life with other men on topics that impact them, their families, their community, and society as a whole. It's an unfiltered and unadulterated look at what life is like from a man's perspective. I'm the host, I'm Rihan. I'm a genuine men's coach. And I'd love to welcome our special guest today, Dr. Rafiq Gardi. Welcome, Dr. Rafiq. Hello, everyone. Salakam. Glad to be on board. Lovely to have you on board. We're really excited to have you. Um, I need to explain who you know, what your background is, and who you who you are, because you have an amazing background. Uh, so, Dr. Rafiq is a graduate of Glasgow University, Cardiff University, and Queen's University in Canada. He has a multicultural and multilingual background. He's a daytime practicing GP locum and a long-term out-of-hours GP in both urban and rural areas of Scotland. Whilst working abroad for Emirates Airlines, including as an aviation medical examiner, he completed his diploma with merits, might I add, in palliative medicine at Cardiff University before returning back to the UK. And his true passion and calling is the quality provision of palliative care to all those that are in need. Thank you for joining us today on this very exclusive and really important topic that many of us have, have been experiencing, um, especially since COVID-19. No, thank you very much for having me on board, Rehan. It's a no privilege to be on board. Um, I just want to say that grief is a huge umbrella topic and many people experience it not just because they've had an intimate experience with it because of a loved one that has passed or has, has dealt with a, a disease of some, of some kind um, where it was near death, uh, but it's also, I, I'm sensing, and I'd love to, for you to, to touch upon this at a later time, about um, also the grief that we feel from what we see in the media, grief that we see from, for example, the George Floyds of the world and what has happened to him and all those that have struggled and suffered um, also around the world. Before we get into that, I'd love to ask you, as a fellow North American, um, what brought you to the UK? All right, well, let's give you the background on myself then. I've, uh what is, is quintessentially the most non-linear career ever. Uh, I, I came to the UK because I was in my final year at Queen's uh, for my Bachelor of Life Science and we had relatives here in Scotland and they say, you know, you could get into medical school with an ordinary degree here in Scotland as a postgraduate. And I was like, okay, well, let's apply. And hey presto, I got accepted both to Glasgow and to Aberdeen. And because we had relatives here in Glasgow, uh, living would be easier and there'd be a lot more free meals around. So I came to Glasgow. And as they say, that's how it 
all started from there in terms of just career-wise. And then, I mean, career-wise as medicine, it's not as easy as just saying, like engineering, you know, you've got many subspecialities and regions that interests, you know, A&E or uh, accident emergency, ER, you've got, you know, geriatrics or uh, health for the elderly, you've got women's health now, you've got children's pediatrics. So in that kind of journey, I've, t I've touched on many different specialities that were initially more interesting. I mean, I started off you know, from med school wanting to be a surgeon and an, orth an orthopedic surgeon at that, but then uh, I grew a brain, so to speak, um, because uh, there's more involved in medicine than just essential human carpentry, which is, um, Sorry if that gets up the, the noses of the orthopedic surgeons, but that was basically human carpentry. Um, there's more intellectual stimulus was required for me. And then I wanted to try or went for a few years in A&E or accident emergency, ER for you guys in North America. And uh, that didn't quite sit well with me because of the continuous sort of drug and alcohol component of all your um, patients. So that's a significant cohort, no matter what accident emergency department you work in anywhere in the world, drugs and alcohol, and the prospect of facing a career with that didn't quite appeal. And I then had the opportunity to go into a GP training scheme here in Scotland, and it kind of just fell right because I wanted to have a life and a wife, and because life in hospital can be quite demanding and restrictive in family life. So I figured I actually want to have a family life. And here I ended up in GP land. Well, it's GP land in itself now is significantly different from what it used to be in the days of yore. We have now here in Scotland and the UK, what we call gypsies or GPs with special interests. In other words, a family physician or GP that has a special interest in a specific area of medicine, so to speak. There are GPs with a special interest in ophthalmology, ENT, dermatology, end of life care or palliative care for me. Or pediatrics, so you you are allowed to almost subspecialize to some extent without being a hospital-based specialist. And hence, while I was working in the out of hours, and I've done that now across multiple places in Scotland. I mean, my children often joke that I've seen more of Scotland than they have all put together, because I would do house calls both rurally and here in the city of Glasgow, as well as all over Tayside and up hills and on remote, remote farms in the middle of the night, that kind of thing. And if you've got that analogy that I've been everywhere and, but seen it in the middle of the night. And doing that, uh, there was this huge gap in uh, what is available and what is actually practiced on the ground that sort of dichotomy between best practice and what happens in real life. And the tragedy is still to this day, the kind of Darwinian statistic as it's put out there is despite what we have here in the UK and Scotland, despite the NHS, uh, one in four people will have inadequate end of life care. And that's what really fueled my passion that says, uh, that's not good enough. Okay, so everyone is entitled to adequate end of life care. In other words, adequate provision for pain relief, nausea, anxiety, distress, when you're having your final moments. And if we can't take care of our most vulnerable in their final moments, that really speaks of us quite disparagingly as a society. So moving that brick forward, even minuscule amount, 
will help so many others have a more peaceful and a more uh, sort of holistic end of life experience that can almost be, uh, in some case, even rejoicing or celebratory. So hence I'm into, or my passion is for palliative care end of life. And part of palliative care includes the grief process because obviously getting an end of life diagnosis is a real stomach punch to anyone. Emotionally, spiritually, it is a lot of a burden to take on that your time in the hourglass has become significantly more limited. So grief in that respect is quite a natural cohort or natural to follow on with to begin learning about and helping people work their way through it. But as you touched upon, Reham, grief is not just in terms of a bereavement, in terms of death, it's in terms of everyday activities even. I mean, uh, one of the, you know, I was mentioning it earlier to one of my colleagues, one of the statistics out there is, or grief-related facts in, amongst children, is that children feel a greater sense of relief, distress, or grief at the loss of their mobile phone than they do at the death of their pet. Um, because we are such an electronically tied environment, you can understand the number of hours they spend on the electronic media versus walking by the dog, um, creates a different sort of uh, approach to what grief means. There's grief in many different ways. And I wanna say that's astonishing, but unfortunately it's not. And, and I could imagine a teenager right now losing their phone and going into mad hysteria because it's, it's their lifeline, especially now oh, during COVID. Completely. It's uh, the, the COVID-created bubbles of uh, internet existence has really exacerbated that to a huge extent. And there's going to be a lot of COVID-related anxiety in the future in terms of sort of a, almost a mild kind of almost cultural agoraphobia that we're going to all need to get over or come to, to terms with, you know, going out in terms of what is the new normal, the social distancing that can, who should touch what, should wear, you know, the, the new whole apparatus of hygiene and cleaning restaurants and public spaces. These are huge topics that public health now have to tackle and begin addressing both with businesses and with enterprise that's gonna be up and coming. I mean, one of my best friends is a car dealer and I gave him sound advice as to, you know, how to best sterilize cars between and not to, uh, you know, allow them so much time between different uh, customers taking different cars even. You know, things like that that you would have 10, 10 months ago, a year ago, never even thought about sterilizing a car between users. So, so fear of germs, Fear, fear of open spaces, fear of, fear of closed spaces. Yeah, there's a whole lot of other sort of now, you know, a, a fear market almost in some sense of what we have to now begin addressing. And if we don't start discussing it openly and saying, look, what are norms? What is the relative risk of doing something? In terms of get that, that one of my friends here uh, for his business, he needed to go do some things down in London. And he was petrified and he was like, Rafiq, I don't know what to do. I got to go to London. I need to take the train. I need to fly down. I need to use the metro, the subway to get around to see all these different places for my business. And I was like, wait a second, hang on. Can we not just reduce that risk relatively to you? And it says, why don't you take your car? And there are lots, lot less traffic in, in London. Take your bike. And all of a sudden, you could just see the wheels and the penny drop. He was not going to be in a public space. He would be in his own car 
to and from London and he could drive his own bike to and from all the different places he needed to go. Essentially, when he arrived, sterilize the hotel room, okay? Take all the snacks, YouTube videos, whatever he wanted to watch for the two days he needed to be there. Didn't need to leave the hotel room. Get takeaway foods and then eat them and dispose of them appropriately in the park and come back to his hotel room. And hey presto, it would have been really no different than going here in Glasgow to a hotel and doing his own work. So it's about that relative risk reduction, seeing what risks are sensible and that I can reduce without going above the normal. And there are a lot of people with OCD or cleanliness related behaviors that are quite frankly, struggling enormously with this COVID and the need to clean materials, need not to touch things, social distancing. And it's a matter of saying, well, relatively speaking, you know, what is the risk of catching it? I am in an outdoors environment. There's a wind blowing. I'm beyond four feet from him. And he's not, he's actually downwind from me as opposed to up, upwind, you know, minor things that you can start to say, okay, this is a very, relatively low risk environment versus being in, let's say, uh, we've got them over here, a little Fiat 500, you know, the tiny little cars? Yes. <laughs> if we're yes. an extended car journey with the same individual, you're like, you're in a closed space in narrow quarters with an enclosed airspace that's not going to move. You know, that is a relatively higher risk than speaking to somebody in the streets of Glasgow now where we've got a bit of, bit of a wind and a bit of a blustery day. So it's that key term for, if you're going to take home anything is to, apply that in, the, in, the, in this COVID environment, relative risk reduction, and say, what are sensible? How can I reduce it? And think also like a, a bit out of the box saying, can I do this differently? That is less of a risk. So what's another way, while we're on this topic of relative risk reduction, what's another way that we can look at the news, for example? because that is a mental and emotional risk, sometimes psychological risk, to watch the news incessantly, especially now with COVID um, uh, lockdown lifting a bit, or then there's an insurgence in some areas of the world and uh, a return of, of lockdown again. I mean, there's PTSD and there's a lot of stuff, but how can we reduce the risk for ourselves and for our children while we're using electronics right now that give us what could be perceived as that same breakdown if we lose a um uh if a teenager loses their phone uh, an adult not being able to watch the news the news in of itself it's they're following the highest the highest story at the moment okay and there are news sources and then there are news sources as we've all learned about fake media and fake news and there's following trends when uh, the news and the news agencies and the news businesses, if we actually are more honest, are in the business of being the, reporting it first, but not necessarily reporting it correctly. So uh, every, the COVID from a sort of a disease perspective, epidemiolog epidemiologically, it will indeed have a second wave the understanding of what lockdown created was it bought the health services time and didn't overload it with critical care patients. So there's a sense that people will still be getting ill with COVID, but we will have the capacity to treat everyone fairly 
to the best of our ability or to the best of the healthcare's ability. That was the obvious intention behind this lockdown or the shelter in place order that they call it in the States. So uh, it will, the news is gonna be there no matter what you do, 24 hours a day, it's there, CNN, Sky News, BBC. It is a matter of being able to step back and says rationally, uh, I did this to my dad in the early stages of the COVID, he was following it like hour to hour. And now I'm saying, look, dad, you are X years old. You have no epidemiological contribution to make. You have no expertise in the field. I suggest you watch it two or three times a day. In other words, limit your exposure to times when you can actually take it in, process it, and say, this is relevant to me or this is not relevant. It is the same thing as if you were to have constant background heavy rock music. It, it's, at some point, it just becomes overwhelming. So in some sense, you need to pick the times of day when you're able to process it, rationalize and deal with the information you're given, as opposed to this constant fear from here, fear from there, fear from here. That's gonna be a normal because there will be scattered outbreaks across the planet. When naughty people go and socially mix and cough, sneeze, hug, whatnot, there'll be an outbreak. This is inevitable. This is a, a pathogen and a virus, okay? But in the context of that, we acknowledge that they have the resources in that place, like they have the resources in Beijing, they shut the city down again, and they will now begin more vigorous local testing and hopefully stop the spread in that particular city, unfortunately, that it caught that second, second wave. So being able to limit the amount of time you spend looking at and for news and actually then going on with your everyday and taking care of the people around you that are important, your nearest and dearest, and paying your bills, you know, will be far more productive for you than being a continuous news junkie for the latest fear hit. Well spoken, well spoken, Dr. Rafiq. So let's go one level deeper, if, if, we, if we may. Um, and for example, I mentioned in the intro about the George Floyd. So when we watch media coverage, about someone being harmed or dying. How does that impact a human being that isn't related to George Floyd or anybody else of that nature around the world? How does that impact us and our grief? In terms of how it impacts each and every, if we'll all take different things from this tragedy and work it forward. Uh, I come from on the background of being uh, half South African and having actually lived through and apartheid. So what happened to George Floyd is indeed tragic, but it has happened to hundreds and thousands of others that never were documented. I mean, in the South African context, you could look up Stephen Biko, who similarly was really abused and passed away. Um, in terms of how we approach it, in terms of grief, um, this is the thing about the current state. Um, it's apartheid and the struggle against apartheid had a clear endpoint. This, the tragedy for Mr. Floyd, it's much harder to kind of rationalize and come to a sort of where, where do we take this from now is the question I'm trying to ask we need to obviously begin addressing some of the systemic 
uh, in the inequalities that occur in any system that have been there for years. Um, there was some uh, lecturer that was giving a lecture in the States and she asked some brilliant questions of her audience that was predominantly of Caucasian white descent. Uh, I can't remember the exact YouTube link. You could probably find it and put it in, but she asked it in a very succinct way that if you know the system is unjust, but you're not prepared to move it, then there's a problem. And that's where we're at now. So what we need to do is begin addressing the sort of institutionalized forms of racism that have existed and still exist to the point where uh, we, some equity needs to be, be had. I mean, here in the, the UK, uh, how come so many private school children get into universities versus public school children? You know, uh, there's still the same amount of kids. They still have the same amount of intellectual capacity. So what, what is the disparity between the entrance to Eton always coming from private schools versus coming from state or public schools? You know, that is a sense where do you, you have to begin drawing. Isn't that not a form of institutionalized predisposition or racism? And you kind of have to, oh, wait a second. How can you begin adjusting this? That's a, a more step-by-step step and institution-by-institution discussion that has to happen beyond George Floyd. So George Floyd can be a great catalyst for change, yes. But the change needs to be addressed on a literally institution-by-institution institution basis. And there are a lot of institutions that have a lot of changes that are needed. Thank you for that thorough answer. Um, so, I forgot to ask you a question. Why medical school? Why not uh, a lecturer in a university or, you know, someone that is a, um, uh, someone that is um, in a different field? Why medical school in particular? Well, I always wanted to help and heal people. I don't know, that was just a, uh, I wanted to make, a difference in people's lives that I could quantify. Uh, it, it's easy to say you can make a great difference in somebody's life by writing a, a beautifully spiritual book and an uplifting book. But me being who I am, I wanted to be up close and personal, at the sharp end of the spear, so to speak. And uh, I had that, I needed to make a difference myself in someone's life and to know that I had helped in a very real capacity. Um, it's, it, it's a kind of a natural evolution. I mean, I would, you know, back in the 1980s, I, as a high school student, you know, back in the 80s, oh, I feel like a dinosaur now, um, before it would even hit the news and the media, I mean, I looked at the problem of hunger in high school with my best friend at the time and we were like well, you know how can you change things for and at that point remember it was a great famine in ethiopia so how can we make a difference for them if you were to, to say well you know you give a man a fish you feed him for a day you teach him how to fish he feeds for life and instead of giving food or flower relief we actually opted to dig wells and we therefore raised money in high school x number of thousands sent it there to dig wells in order so that they have clean water, in order to be able to grow food, cook clean, cook with clean water, you know, drinkable drinking water. So that sort of how can I make a difference has been in me for 
years, I think since I was small. Well, a man with an impact and a mission. Uh, what advice do you have for those students that are going into medical school now or potentially teetering on looking at medical school as an option before we move on to brief? Uh, medical school, it's medicine as it's probably idealized in the news. I mean, I, I struggle to watch some of these medical programs uh, that are more soap opera than medical programs. I, I, I told some of the youngsters around the corner that were asking me about it. I said, if you really want to know what the deep end is like, go back in time and watch the first five episodes of ER. The very first five air episodes, okay? Those were the more, most realistic sort of medical programs I'd come across. And the ones I see now, I'm looking at the screen going, where did all those, where, where did all, where's all that staff? I'd like to see them in my ward, you know? It's quite, uh, don't be led by what's in the news or what is popular TV programs and people swanning into theater and people having conversations, it's, it doesn't happen that way, okay? Go and get some on the ground experience. Get your you know, boots on the ground experience. Go and see what the resident's life is like. Go and see what the ER life is like. Go and see it on the ground. What do you do day in and day out, okay? And this is where I'm gonna be a tremendous ad for GPs with special interests, because you can be a general practitioner, a family doctor, with a special interest in a broader clinic where, you know, your colleagues know. Rafik, I'll ask you the palliative questions, but, uh, you know, Barbara, I'm going to ask you the lady questions, because I know that's your zen. You know, you see what I mean? It is a far more different environment than what it is portrayed or traditionally viewed as, the sort of, uh, which isn't, the media as well as in the news, it is and has been viewed for too long as a sort of, well, you can't be a hospital doctor, well, just go to general practice. No, no, you gotta get into general practice to, to be in general practice. So now we're actually a subspecialty here in the UK already. It is kind of, yeah, your hospital consultant, yeah, they have this much, they have this width of experience. They, are, they know everything there is about this tiny subject, whereas us GPs have to carry a whole load of other subjects and know a little bit about everything. And then there's one that we're particularly interested in that we know a lot about. Well, it's thanks for dispelling that myth. Yeah, taking that myth of, but get experience on the ground would be my advice to anyone thinking of medicine as a career, because it has to be more of a calling than a kind of uh, what I would call one of those one-armed bandits. It ain't that no more, okay? Okay, the ultra luxury cosmetic surgeons that do fancy things in Hollywood, yeah, that one in five, 3% that can actually do that and get that, okay. But the other 95% of us, this is not a one-armed bandit that we're all pulling the arm on. Fair enough. So um, taking a, a different direction from the one-armed bandit, um, let's go into palliative care. So you mentioned it before, you kind of briefly explained what it is. If you can give us like an insider's view of what palliative care really means for you as a doctor, but also for, for patients and their families that may be experiencing um, end of life uh, concerns or decisions. Okay, obviously people come to this 
this word palliative care or end of life with a lot of different assumptions and expectations. Let's just start off with the basic premise that a lot of people make the assumption that we're the guys that come and turn everything off. Okay, it's the end, halas finish, it's go, you know, here's your one-way ticket out into the hinterland, we've had enough of you. No, I'm, we're the guys that'll fight nail, tooth and claw to give you the, the most time and the most quality time that you have left, period. Okay, we will fight beside you with our experience, with your families, to give you the end of life that we would aspire not only for you, but for everyone and ourselves included. So we, we're not about ending life. We're about providing the best medical care to the very end. In other words, making sure that nobody dies in pain, nobody dies distressed, nobody dies in, with medical treatments that are available. You know, that's, so we're not about turning the lights off. We're about keeping you comfortable and living well to the very end. That's palliative care and a palliative diagnosis. I mean, I have patients who have palliative diagnosis. Their lungs are basically knackered, but they live for years with that. It isn't a matter of just minutes or hours, days, weeks. It can be years. So someone can have, you're, you're, you know, you're at end of life heart disease that excuse me doesn't mean you're about to drop right now but that does mean medically we we're no more advanced we can't improve the treatments that you have for your heart lungs kidney anymore with the current state of medical research that we have now in 10 20 years we will have moved the brick the medical knowledge that i call it i call it the brick we will have moved it that much further along however at this stage your diagnosis is palliative because we don't have the technology, the research, the, the drugs and facilities to treat this condition at this stage. At that point, we then as the palliative care specialists step in and says, well, let's make what time you have left the most comfortable and best time for you. And that's what we try to do. So let's break it down if, if, we, if you can. Um, so a patient comes to you, they've just been diagnosed, and they may have their family with them, or it might be a private session. Mm. What, what's right. the difference well, and what happens? Because I've noticed that, because um, I work with, with, with patients, uh, not as a doctor, but from a uh, coach perspective, working with them through the fears, through the anxiety of, of how can I prepare for my end? And so a lot of patients, um, which would be my clients, for example, struggle with the concept of how do I wrap my brain around death when I might be in my 20s or 30s or 40s or even 60s and 70s, but I'm not ready. Let's start there and then move forward. That coming to terms with your imminent mortality, that's a really, really hard topic. And that in of itself has books written about it by far more famous theologians than me here on my kitchen table. Um, it's it really, every individual comes to this uh, with their own sort of psychological, spiritual, and cultural baggage based upon A, what experiences they've seen in their family and to some extent will mirror or, you know, replicate themselves. 
to what is expected of them culturally normally and their own fears and expectations. So there's a lot of interplaying factors for every single individual. So I can't, it would be remiss of me to try to give you a one, one stop fits all at this point. It comes down, you have to begin obviously having the discussion with your individual patient that you know, and you know their diagnosis, you know their background, which as a GP is very, very fulfilling because that's why GP life is so nice. I, being a GP, a CPA paper from, you know, cradle to grave, you know, the McSo-and-sos are always naughty, but coming back to that, facing one of life's greatest fears, it doesn't necessarily have to come about as a palliative care diagnosis. It comes with a, even with the death of a, a pet, a spouse, of a best friend, because sooner or later, it will be me on that bed. And that's my real motivator to make this better for everyone, is that, that when I'm on that bed, I want the girl or boy who's giving my care to match me or do better. And right now, we need to work on that. <laughs> okay? But that, that fear that of the unknown comes, some people come from a cultural background where they're expected to be reincarnated, where they're expected to lift their spiritual state from a lower state to a higher state. Some people come with the expectation of an afterlife. You know, some people come completely that this is it and this is the end of me. So this is why that the discussion around death is entirely contextualized with the person that you're in front of. So it's a really broad question. Man. It would be very difficult to even begin it. But it, to begin giving some kind of parameters is how you start discussing it. What is your normal is a very important question to bring up. What are you expecting? What do you, you know, what have you read about? So addressing everybody's hopes, fears, and expectations, you can begin at least uh, discussing each one in turn saying, well, actually we can treat pain very well nowadays. Actually, you can go home on oxygen. Yes, you can actually travel or could do before COVID. You could travel the world on strong pain relief. You could go on a cruise all over Europe, a Mediterranean cruise on oxygen and on maximum dose painkillers, no problem. You know, okay, COVID burped that to some extent, but it will come back. So diffusing or, dis, you know, not dismissing, but removing these presuppositions, dispelling was the word, dispelling these images or these uh, wrong assumptions about end of life care can give you a lot of comfort in knowing that you won't suffer pain, you can travel, you, you'll be comfortable towards the end with the, the right care. Makes a lot of people feel a lot more comfortable. Okay, I can deal with that. And then you get down to the nitty gritties of what happens when I pass and you know, the whole legal bits, you know, my will, my property, my et cetera's. You know, that is, again, very culturally different as to who inherits what and what goes to whom or what, what is going to be my burial, cremation, funeral. You know, the latest craze that was on my son showed me those Ghanaian mourner dancing. I was like, fantastic. That's one way to celebrate somebody's end of life. But that's what it comes from, the Ghanaian tradition of celebrating somebody's life. It isn't disrespectful. They're actually celebrating the person. So you have to kind of be able to interpret what is going on in context of their cultural norm. And here in the West of Scotland, 
particularly for us men, and coming back to grief and emotions, we have a very bad history of openness and honesty. I mean, this is very much, I call it the sort of archetypal West of Scotland man. And the analogy is this, I don't know if you have, you know, Monty Python, the Holy Grail, I bring him up. You know, that knight that says it's just a flesh wound and tries to continue fighting to the point of ridiculeness. You know, he's just essentially a legless and an armless knight trying to headbutt, but he called it continuously a flesh wound. Well, the wounds and the hurt and the sadness are things that we as blokes are never given a forum to say this is normal. It's okay to be sad. You're supposed to feel sad. This is normal because you are attached to this person for 40 years. No wonder you're gonna absolutely lose the biscuit and cry when you, you, you see the roses that your loved one loved. This is normal. And hearing that from a physician or somebody with expertise, I hope gives somebody some sense of, you know, anchoring and relief, but some people actually don't speak enough about it. And that's the problem with a lot of us men. We don't come from a culture or a, an accepted openness of our emotions. I mean, the, it goes back to high school to institutionalized gender bias or gender roles. And where are we with that? We, we're, we've not really advanced that brick beyond the front door. You know, if you were to say, if it doesn't really matter, it's, it, 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 we're trying to move it, hang on. Just try putting a bow in a teenage boy's hair and tell him, go to school wearing that. Okay? So it's still very much out there. The sort of machismo attitude inhibits and means for a lot of sort of personal and excessive grief. You know, uh, there was something that was really positive in Australia, New Zealand. They call it the, the shed experiment. Where to deal with depression in younger men, they would, they would match them with older men with similar interests. And they would actually go and have this hobby or whatever, be it woodcutting or fishing, whatever, to older men. And over time, they wouldn't just, they wouldn't talk about their feelings. To begin with, they'd talk about the hobby you know, train building, whatever it is, Lego, I don't, whatever the subject, but that actually gave them a forum to ask a non-related bloke that they had grown to trust about other things. And we don't as men have that as a sort of forum, let's talk about something else. And just talk about feeling sad, feeling grief, that this is actually, makes me feel really emotional. You know, the idea of being emotional and a man is very much, uh, you're made into effeminate figures. However, I would love to jump on that bandwagon and say the effeminate feelings and characteristics in a man don't make him weak. In fact, it's strong when built and, and nurtured because we both as as men and women we have both masculine and feminine energies or um characteristics and denying one half means we're denying parts of who we are so when we show emotion or um as women we're showing emotion and 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 welcoming that feminine side but when you see a ceo that's a woman and taking charge and she's just like the blokes 
you know, she's taking on that masculine energy. Whether one is right or wrong, that's, that's irrelevant of right now. But what I'm saying is men have both, but oftentimes only express one. And that's what this show and, and our, our, our genuine men's movement is all about. It's about many men, many conversations so that we can open those, those doors, those windows, those pathways for dialogue about what you were saying is happening in New Zealand and Australia about something that's safe and then working towards something that might have a, a tint of emotional, you know, uh, flair and, and making it safe and okay. Bringing that to the current sense of grief. Now, there are lots of different models when people talk about grief or sadness. And the ones that they use traditionally, I have a kind of, I don't deal very well with because I don't think they do justice to uh, the human beings or how we feel. Grief per se, they've got this, the medicalized version that even I knew is dabda, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, acceptance. That model isn't quite as, it, those aren't actually, uh, they're called grief stages, but they aren't per se, how can anger be a grief, a stage? It's an emotion. So I, I go to one that's far more holistic in its sense. In other words, when you have a, a loss, there's obviously the initial sense of numbness. That's the, kind of stage one. That makes sense because you don't just feel denial. You feel a sense of numbness. You've got this, something has happened. You feel a sense of numbness. You don't quite know how to calculate it. You don't know how to anticipate it. What's going to happen next? Okay. The next stage is waves of distress. In other words, sadness, anger. These are actual a wave of a pattern. They aren't just one emotion. The Dabda model had you are now angry. That, that, I can be angry at the very end. I can be angry at the beginning. Why are you telling me that this is a specific stage? So let's get back to the stages that I think describe them better in terms of grief. Okay, so we have initial numbness. You just got the, the shocking news. You've got the second stage is kind of the waves of distress. All the different emotions go through your head. Anger, fear, joy, oh my God, revelation, okay? The third stage is disorganization, okay? And that comes with the negative aspects, sort of the loneliness, the sense of despair, the, the social isolation feeling, nobody feels like what I feel at the moment, okay? So we've got three stages coming to the fourth. Initial numbness, waves of distress, disorganization. The fourth is reorganization and recovery. So that's when you or reorganize yourself saying, wait a second, how can I deal with this better? What is it going to impact? How am I going to change my life? What am I going to do differently? How can I help my relative with this? That is reorganization and recovery. So those four stages, I think, are far more useful if you're going to take away anything at all to reorganize how you approach grief. Initial numbness, waves of distress, disorganization, followed by reorganization and recovery. Okay? So once you begin thinking your grief in those senses, you can put emotions everywhere. But you need to begin having a sort of a pathway through the grief. And this is, I think, a far better roadmap than denial, anger, and bargaining, and acceptance. It kind of acknowledges that you can have emotions at every stage, but it's your brain that has to readjust to the new reality of what you're facing, enlighten having these emotions. 
Absolutely. I, I think it's even more tangible and relatable for a young child that may have lost a pet or a phone, um, yep. you know, to, to understand that and to explain it to them. So there you go. They'll go through initial numbness. My phone's gone. Distress. Oh my God. I, I can't speak to my friends. To disorganization. Oh my God. I feel so alone without my phone. To reorganization. Let's get dad to buy another phone. <laughs> So do these stages happen systematically or, you know, uh, do they happen? flip between the, the two of them, all four of them, but this is more sequential mm -hmm. than the DABDA stages. The, it is far more logical in how it approaches it. Initial numbness, smack, this is news I've never had before, to waves of distress, all the emotions that stir up, then the disorganization, oh my God, this really feels, oh, I, I've lost something here. So how do I reorganize and recover from here? That to me is a far more natural evolution than that list of denial, bargaining. No, that, 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 that can happen at every stage. You see what I mean? Absolutely. So what happens then to a relative or a loved one that is taking care of someone that is end of life or needing the palliative care? How can they you know, when they're seeing these stages, all of them or one of them or some of them at a time, how can they support their loved one? Well, first of all, you've got to actually acknowledge that you're hurting. That's a, a big thing to say. This hurts me. I am feeling, okay? And grief and sadness can trigger many different emotions. Guilt, anxiety, stress. This is normal. Your brain is trying to reorganize itself, trying to come to terms with what is, what's going to be a new reality. In other words, the, the imminent upcoming absence of this beloved person or pet or individual. So your brain is already trying to help you readjust to the existence after they have departed. But in doing so, it needs to begin a dissociation in your head, so to speak, between that person as they currently are and your brain and your memories, okay? Your grief in your process is utterly unique to you and your brain, okay? It is entirely unique. There's no set pattern of this follows that, follows that like a ritual, doesn't happen, okay? I've seen and treated enough patients, enough individuals. There are broad brushes of color that are true, but each and one is utterly individual, okay? Um, Having face-to-face, -face, even online, but in person was better because there's that gives you a sense of shared experience and shared grief. And that actually allows your emotions to be acknowledged, but also to be shared that other people are feeling the exact same thing. You know, I'm going to cry with the kid because he lost his phone because I'm going to have to buy him another one too. You know, but it's a shared experience and that lessens the burden to both people and me, it actually makes them closer and then helps them build a bridge to going forward. Okay. And this as important. It sounds at, at the very back of it, but making sure that, you know, while you're in the process of grief, you actually have regular sleep, you have regular meals, you it's almost a bit selfish, but you take care of yourself physically during the process. You know, there is no, no, no benefit in you exhausting yourself trying to take care of somebody who is indeed declining 
because you will become less and less able to deal with it as you become more and more exhausted. It's like putting on your oxygen mask before your child. Exactly what I was going to bring to you, okay? But you see, there's a huge difference, okay, between grief and depression, okay? Grief is normal. It's going to happen to all of us. We will all be bereaved. This is normal. There's a gauntlet of human emotions that come with it. It is normal to feel these emotions. You're supposed to feel these emotions. The only people who don't are sociopaths and psychopaths who have a very different outlook on life. Again, that narrow 2% two, 2 that we can't deal with. But depression can lead on from grief, okay? So you can end up becoming depressed because of the grief that you have and you haven't resolved or addressed it. And you then engage in maladaptive behaviors, maladaptive thinking patterns, and you've kind of downward spiraled mentally to a place you don't really want to be at and you will struggle to get yourself away from without professional help. And it's having the, the confidence in finding somebody that says, look, you can help me out of this bad valley, let's start the walk. But for us, here we are, west of Scotland, the blokes here really struggle with the idea of putting up their hand for help. Okay, it's very much, I will cope with this, that machismo, it means I will get through this. It is a great degree of stoicism, undeniably so and admirable, but it is stoicism to the point of self-harm. Oh, please explain that where... point a little bit more clearly, please, because I, I understand it, but I would love for more clarity, uh, examples even. Yeah, well, if you, can, if you continue to repress your sadness, you will at some point need to vent that sadness. You know, if you can imagine it like an emotional boil, it's, it'll continue to fester in you until you actually address it. You know, it'll have other outcomes. You might be more snappy. You might be less patient with your worker colleagues. You might just start shouting at people for trivial matters. And you'll look back and say, why was I shouting to her about apples in the supermarket? You know, but because your, the stress level and emotional level in your brain has been altered by the grief you haven't addressed, you will be in a place mentally that you're going, I was shouting to somebody about apples. You know, an ordinary thing that, that just got escalated because you were in a very heightened emotional state because your brain hasn't had a chance to process what was your grief. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Um, so this heightened emotional state that we're talking about that is caused by grief, grief from a loss of a job, for example, yeah. job, loved um, one. a loved one, you yeah. know, identity as a man, as the provider yeah. or the carer or huge. All of these, that, that, that's the state, that's where you feel this sense of disorganization okay your your entire expectations of what your life was to be what was to happen i was to provide the mortgage this was going to be my job for 10 years this is my child they passed away we're never going to see grandkids that whole projected life experience has been truncated and removed from you like that monty python knight that had a leg cut off but you have never addressed replacing it or healing that wound. 
So discussing how you feel and how it made you feel is part of the healing process. I feel sad. I feel upset. This makes me want to cry. It hurts. These are things that you don't see happen in many male dialogues. Okay. And it takes a lot of trust and a very solid bloke relationship to bring this even into picture. So a lot of the blokes here in Scotland won't even speak to this to their wives. Okay. This is kind of maladaptive. And this is where that stoicism has become self-harm. So can you break down maladaptive a bit? Uh, so for, for more clarity, please. Well, maladaptive, that means being stoic to the extent that you don't discuss things with the people that care for you. In other words, I don't want to talk about my feelings because I have to be strong for my family. But your wife is also feeling the same emotion. Your children are feeling the same emotion. Your cousin, your aunt, your uncle, everyone around you is feeling the same emotions. But I will not express it because I am the man and I will take this forward and I will continue being me. Uh, that doesn't bode well for your emotional state because your children don't see a good role model. You've not made any uh, difference to your spouse's emotions. You've not helped anyone going forward. That's what maladaptive is in that kind of grief context where you're not actually speaking to the people around you that not only share these emotions, but also would help and uh, heal these emotions to some extent. So it brings to, to my mind uh, a metaphor of like a man is an island and I got this, I can, I can take care of things, but I'm an island. But in reality, yeah. he has a family, he has loved ones, he has those that friends, care for him. He has extended yeah. net social networks, yes. But the, that's where this emotional openness doesn't or, or isn't encouraged and protected and celebrated to some extent saying, yeah, you can be emotional, that's great. Okay, I support you in this. If you're feeling sad, take a time out. I support you in that. You know, I hear what you're saying, or the, all the other different kinesthetic. I hear what you're saying. I see it. I feel it. Acknowledging somebody's grief is uh, one of the most important things to kind of allow them the sort of the platform or the context to be in talking about it. And so just to break it down one step further, so the maladaptive, could it also be self-sabotaging decisions or habits that it, have... Yes, entirely. You, you could become so wrapped up in grief, you can't leave your own bed. You don't want to go to work. You can't face certain individuals. This is how you can, your grief can manifest in a pure physical sense. You stop eating right. You, know, you, you, you're, you lose your appetite. But this is also normal. You will normally feel this. It is when it becomes excessive and harmful that you need to find someone or someone needs to step in and say, look, this is not good for you. You know, you've been in bed for three weeks. You need to shower. Okay. You need to come and talk to somebody. You know, this is not good for you or your family. And they don't need to see you in this state. Okay. You need to kind of talk about where you're feeling. I mean, some of the normal sensations and feelings around grief. I mean, obviously the obvious ones, crying, tightness in the throat and chest, feeling no strength in your muscles, exhaustion, restlessness, loss of libido, you know, difficulty concentrating, uh, just denying that this is even going to happen. You know, that's why the Dabda one works. It's, it's in there. Um, you know, 
but also some people feel a sense of guilt. Oh, at last, my suffering grandmother has gone, but I feel so bad, but at least she's no longer suffering. There's a kind of guilt relief almost for some people. All of these are normal. We're supposed to have these emotions. It's when they become overbearing and they then begin to impact your, your life and they begin actually preventing you from recovering that they become an issue. Did that help? Absolutely. So what advice do you have for men that are out there that may not even realize that they were grieving, but now that you've explained it and broke it down in such, you know, eloquent and, and descriptive ways, might find that, wait, I am grieving. I'm grieving the loss of my job or my status or my, my future or my family member yep. or whatever it is. Now what? I mean, I'm not ready as a man, for example, um, one of my clients said, I'm not ready to take the steps to move forward because there's a secondary gain. The secondary gain is I'm getting the attention from my family. I'm getting the care from the, from the community. I'm getting government funding so that I don't have to go back to work. Then what? That's a hard one to kind of encompass because that's that whole secondary benefit for what seems to be temporary gain. You know, it's, yeah, how can you steer into a, a more holistic life saying, is this where you want to be? You know, is this how you want to be remembered? Where, where, where do you see your life in five, 10, 15 years? Opening up the discussion to saying, I'm gonna be here in 10 years time. What will my life look like? For some people, that's just like, they, they haven't even, they can't even see beyond tomorrow, let alone next week. But by opening the discussion, it says, if you have a matter of grief, there are a lot of grief related specialist services, by the way, out there that you can go and get to. Over here in the UK, we've got a number of them uh, for even specialized groups, those of a stigmatic or the LGBT, those who have lost children. There are lots of self-help groups out there that are available. I always point somebody, it's good to start to talk to somebody. And I say, look, if you can't think of where you want or don't want anyone to come back to you, here in the, in the UK, we've got the Samaritans. And they're a free phone number 24 hours a day. You'll speak to somebody, maybe not a professional counselor, but you'll get to speak to somebody. And to the teenagers and youngsters, I say, you can be Billy from Bowness on the phone. Okay. But at least you start talking to somebody and get a sounding board for what you're feeling. So start to find somebody that you trust, if possible, uh, a counselor or somebody medically qualified with experience that says, look, I have something I need to talk to you about. And I'll let the, the GP, if you're here in the UK, let them know that you, you want to speak to something of significance so that you've got a, a more, a bit more, more time to discuss it. Okay? And you give your clinician a head warning that there's a topic of importance that I need to broach with you. And that gives you time to begin addressing what is around and what, is, what has brought you to see us on that day. Excellent. But yeah, to start to speak to somebody, find somebody to start to speak to and be able to say and say, I feel, and then put the, put the emotion in. I feel that sentence is very difficult for a lot of blokes to actually say, they, they would even some of them would struggle to say it in the mirror. I feel sad. 
I want to cry. This makes me feel lousy. Okay? And to say, remembering my friend Bill that died makes me feel sad. I want to start crying. This is okay to say. But also to say that is normal. Because you're attached. Bill was your best friend for 20 years. This is normal. And being able to acknowledge that your feelings are normal, they are acceptable, and you will indeed reorganize and recover. You will instead of, for one of my patients that I had, I can use her as an example in this. She indirectly came to me because she had, she had lost her husband of 40 years. And she had actually tried to commit suicide. She was so depressed because of the grief of this loss. Now, these two are like, you know, peas in a pod, acorns for 40 years, okay? And no wonder she's gonna be distressed. You know, it's like you've lost half your body, you know? So beginning to understand what her grief was and that everything around her reminded her of her, her husband. And I said, but that's amazing, okay? Do your children know this? And she was like, no. So I said, well, what, what do they not know about your husband? And I started the exploration to something more positive saying, they don't know where he liked the fish. And obviously this is Scotland. A lot of Scots have some fishing habits. Okay, and I use the word habit. <laughs> um, so which river did he like to fish? How often would he go fish? And she was more than happy. You could see her becoming animated, remembering all his fishing trips and obviously going with them or whatever. But then I said, well, why don't you start writing these down? And over time, she then created the book of her other half of all the memories that she had about her spouse, okay? On top of me, obviously treating her underlying depression, seeing her on regular intervals, keeping her safe. All of these things were happening in the background of, of using medicine or you know, inter intervention on that behalf to help her recover. But she then went on to then keep or create the book of her, her husband to the point where they, he, she would write down the music she, he liked, the bands he used to like to listen to, where they first met, where they danced, you know, places that don't exist anymore that are, mom, you know, shopping malls or whatever. But this is a kind of tangible thing she then can pass on and celebrate her husband's life with her children and grandchildren. So it's turned all her memories that were heartache into memories that are shared and positive with her children and grandchildren that they now know this one strip of the river Tay up in Scotland was his favorite. If she didn't write it down, they'd never know that. So in turning that around, creating a book of your beloved to celebrate their life and their memories and their quirks and habits can be of enormous benefit for some individuals. That's one way to kind of help in a more visceral or literal sense to navigate out of grief. It's a powerful one. It's one that anyone can do from a young child to uh, an, an elderly, um, you know, person that has lost the, the, mm -hmm. the possibility of something, not even a loved one, 
but the possibility of, yeah. of traveling, for example, that that cruise that they had paid or, or set aside and paid for um, for for years and they couldn't go on it um, is one of those things that they could do and research it and go online and and, and turn it into a journey, a virtual travel. Um, yeah, or expedition. Journey on behalf of my granddad, he always wanted to go on the Orient Express. I'm going to go on the Orient Express, but you know what? I'm going to wear his tie on the Orient Express because he's be here with me. That kind of a thing. But uh, you you touched on children here. There's a particularly good site for those with children or who are children facing palliative care or life limiting illness. It's called Winston's Wish. If you Google and look that one up, I did remember that off the top of my head because it is a very good website and uh, online and counseling and bereavement service that you can find lots of resources to help those with children who have this kind of unfortunate life event in front of them occur. So Winston's wish, please, that would be good to share. We'll be adding it to the, to the bottom of the YouTube video, no worries. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. And any others that you can think of, definitely uh, share them with yeah, us. I'll pass them over to you. Yeah. For sure. Um, while we're talking about children, there was a moving video of a father that I saw from the States who had a son. And it, and it, and it, it, it was a beautiful show of emotion and love of the father, but it, it's about children and their experience with grief and how they express it or how they choose to, to look at ways to, to suppress it also. So this, this young teenage boy had, he was, he was really good in school. He was a model child. Um, he was 13, 14, I believe. And his parents got him for Christmas, a game console, and they got him a screen and a really expensive screen at that because he was a really good gamer. Um, and that was his gift uh, of choice. And if I remember correctly, he, in a bit of anger in February, he was really angry uh, and he hit the screen and broke it. And so as you're talking about men and boys expressing their emotions and being desensitized or uh, institutionalized in how they, or their men's and boys' emotions have been, you know, set up in such a way so that they can't express them openly without being criticized or manipulated uh, for them or bullied or in, in some way there's grief around that. So this, this, this young child, teenager um, broke it he made amends with his family they made a they made a pact that he would earn it back and in a month throughout February he worked really hard and did chores and worked in the neighborhood to to be able to pay back the the cost of it so his parents could get a yep. new one he got a new one he was excited this is a week or two before COVID and in a fit of anger he broke the screen now, this 14-year-old child, instead of feeling like he could express his grief and express his guilt and shame of breaking that screen and telling his parents about it, hung himself in the closet. Mm. What can we say to children out there that may be watching that are old enough to watch this, or parents of children that are trying to teach their children about grief 
and how to process their emotions. What is it that we can talk about and share with them today? That's a really complicated subject in itself, but to say we need to begin acknowledging that that was tragic, okay? That was the sheer effort that they had installed it, but that means that you got to establish connection and communication, okay? That will come down to all parents and children just to have open lines of communication, you know? If he had indeed earned it himself and had broke it a second time and had or had broken it and felt such shame, there, there must be a kind of, you must open channels to say, look, and begin saying, breaking things are things. Things are things and they can be replaced. You are far more valuable than any TV in the world to me. You are far more valuable than a car. Heck, you could burn my house down, just make sure my kids are safe. Okay, you gotta have that kind of parameters of this is okay. I know it's an expensive TV. I know it's a, you lost your expensive phone. It's a phone or a device. As a human being, you are infinitely more valuable than any material object, okay? And as such, we need to begin valuing ourselves more than the things we have around us. So that kind of a discussion saying, you are more valuable to me than a TV. You are more valuable to me than a telephone, a car. You are, that in itself makes for ground rules that if something breaks, okay, you didn't mean it, Ugh, it's gonna hurt my wallet, but you are still alive, okay? So setting some sensible parameters and acknowledging that human life is sacred and sacrosanct, that we, we, we gotta say, look, we, I can re, you can replace objects. You can replace kitchens, stoves, cars, TVs. You cannot replace a human being. End of story. That's why I fight so hard in my profession. You can't get it back. So you have to fight for each and every one of us. Now, there could be other issues in the background. There could have been ongoing issues regarding, you know, low self-esteem, low self-worth. This has to be looked in a more sort of holistic and complete picture that we may not see from the outside. So there are lots of issues with kids and self-harm and, you know, even eating disorders there, that's a form of self-harm and control that we need to allow for expressions of emotion, but we need to say is quantify the emotion. Don't punch the TV, punch the pillow. Don't you know, you got to take out your emotions in this safe arena. Go dig a hole. Go hit the tree. You know, find a, an outlet for anger and other emotions that doesn't harm you. You know, go scream into the forest. Find ways to allow for outlets that aren't or that don't harm. Go punch the punching bag until you're, you're exhausted. You know, but these are other ways that you kind of, you, that are available that you can draw upon to allow for the expression of emotion and anger, but to also then value human life above all material objects. I would piggyback on that as well and, and, and push the point of self-harm as in hurting oneself 
and hurting others physically when angry, when upset, is also mm-hmm. another way of, of, of harm that yep. could be allocated and, and taught to kids in a new way. Uh, because sometimes, as you're saying with eating disorders, it's a way for a child to control what they're feeling um, out of control about. So they eat, for example, if they're, if they're choosing to, to starve themselves because of a social image or there are many implications. Just, I'm oversimplifying. Yep. But it, it's, again, it, for some, it's an element of the one thing that they can control. For some, it's, an, it's a societal push for a specific body image that is entirely falsified. I mean, you don't see size six Barbies. That's just that model and image is just generated far more harm than any good. So it's again, normalizing the normal. Okay. And, but allowing for safe environments, you know, to be able to discuss things or get advice from safe sources. So having, we have in the, in Scotland and the UK, the NSPC, the national prevention of childhood prevention of harm to children, you know, they've got a phone line that we can give to children who feel that are at, they're at risk or that they're, that they're being harmed or abused. But you need to give them safe, protected spaces to express their emotion. Not just boys, not just men, but all human beings. But as it is with your Zen of your show, the blokes don't do it very well themselves. So if you, if you don't step up to being the role model your children will mimic and copy your maladaptive or bad behavior. So as men moving the, the brick forward, we have to, in some sense, take ownership of our emotions, but be able to show them and to demonstrate that this is acceptable. Dad gets angry and I go dig in the garden and spend 20 minutes muttering at the vegetables, okay? But that's just what he does when he's miffed. And then he comes in and he has a rational talk about what made him miffed, you know? So finding ways to deal with your emotion that your children says, actually, having anger is normal. But what you do and how you display it and what you, the consequences can be changed. We don't have to inherit the maladaptive behaviors of our parents. That is where we as parents and men have to change what we regard as good or bad. And we have to read a bit more, educate ourselves, speak to other men and blokes about what is good and normal. And like this, create a forum where we can actually say, I feel the following, or this really hurts me, such as the tragedy with George Floyd, such as a tragedy with the other, the other child that was shot in the back. You're like, hello. But anyway, a forum to discuss things, to start, look, it's, it's, I don't want to sound patronizing, dad, sorry, but it's a small thing. Um, Start connecting to the blokes or men around you on a regular basis. If you're going to take anything, start connecting to people that you are friends with, not just tiny circle, grow the circle. You will be surprised at who will come to you and start talking to you. But be willing to engage in discussions to the men around you. Send out a once or twice a week, hello, how's everybody doing during COVID? You know, 
send out that to the, and if you know the bloke likes fishing, send out, how's that fishing ever gonna happen? You know, or how is that, are you, have you polished your car to death because it's been in the garage for so long? But start discussions on a regular basis with the men around you so that when you find yourself in a, in a difficult situation, you are, have already built up months, years of open and honest and trusting conversations that it is not an issue to broach. My boss actually touched me wrong. What the heck do I do now? Okay. Or I don't know what to do in this situation. Do you, you worked at a similar kind of garage. What would you do here? You see what I mean? But if you don't create a network around you, you'll be left without. And that's when you'll start to struggle and you'll go in, in internalize and you'll or maybe overthink or come to the wrong conclusions or you'll, you, you have no reference points to guide you. Start talking to other blokes like this forum openly, but start talking to them to build a friendship that, that can lead to more frank discussions later. You know, changing somebody's perception of cultural stereotypes. I mean, looking at me, it happens every time I do a house call. They see my color, they see my religious garb, but then I start talking in North American English and you can just see the brain go, whoa, this doesn't fit. And then all of a sudden you, you, you move the brick forward. You take them to another step. You say, wait a second, the cultural stereotypes about a religious Muslim man really don't fit. He, that, no. He, so you, but if you don't start the discussion, you don't open the channels, you don't create a forum that you feel safe in and that your friend feels safe in, you're never gonna have the difficult chat that, you know, my other half is having an affair, what do I do? You know, or my, this thing's going wrong in my life. We don't, we're not very good at doing that. And especially here in the West of Scotland, it just doesn't happen. Yeah, I've noticed and, and, and that's, it, it's sad, but what, what I'm, I'm recognizing more and more now is men are opening up to have these conversations with their mates, not emotional conversations, but some conversations. And then they're intrigued or surprised by the fact that their mate has been struggling with depression for yep. some time or has been uh, let go from their job and nobody knew about it because of the shame and the guilt he felt. Or he's struggling with a mental illness uh, as many men are struggling with it uh, after the age of 50 or 53 as the statistics show. Um, one in three men will be faced with a type of mental um, diagnosis um, or illness here in the UK. So, you know, making sure that those connections, uh, those lines of communication and those connections are open so that if you're not needing it, somebody you know will is, yep. is essential. We've covered a lot of ground um, and, and it's all invaluable, I have to say, for myself and my, my, uh, my clients and our audience. There are a bit of, of areas that we haven't covered and if we can just go there just quickly. So you touched upon the legal aspects of, of grief and palliative care. Can we touch upon that a little bit more? And then one last aspect would be, what advice can you give family members uh, and how they could better support 
their loved ones on this path of, of overcoming, you know, end of, of life uh, decisions. Okay. There are lots of bits to palliative care that are obviously legally quite complicated. Um, Without giving legal advice, I'm saying what are yeah, some things... Without well, giving legal advice, yeah. but I mean, it, in, in Scotland and the UK, if you die without a will, let's say, the state takes a chunk of everything, you know, and that's quite hurtful if you have to then, you can't inherit everything that you're meant to inherit because you didn't have a will. It's a kind of a, a first step, the who inherits what from you. It's very emotional to write your will. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a hard thing to do. But having a will protects your loved ones from the state taking a chunk of your, your estate after you pass away. So that's different so, from a living will, correct? And uh, living, will is totally different. living will means that if I become a vegetable, this is what I want to happen with my, my life, my body and decisions. That's totally different from a will that once I pass away, my car is going to X, my house, my, my, my comic collection, my book collection, my marble collection goes to so totally different. That's your, your will once you have passed on. That's what we call uh, advanced directive is more of the medical term where you actually say in the event of me becoming incapacitated. So that could be due to mental illness. It could be due to Alzheimer's or dementia. I would like the following to happen. And then you, you, you discuss it with your family. You discuss it with your GP. You discuss it with, this is what I would like to happen. I would like to be, you know, I don't want to have CPR done. Legal decision there. Uh, that's a separate one. And I would like to, I don't want to go to hospital unless I break my leg, okay? If I'm demented and have a broken leg, you'll need to go to hospital no matter what. You see what I mean? So these are kind of, that's a living will versus a last will and testament, so to speak. Is that okay for the legal bit? Absolutely, bits? absolutely. So that's important to have in place because obviously you don't want a, a massive chunk of your estate to automatically be taken by the government just because you didn't write something down on a piece of paper. Hard as it is, and I acknowledge it, it is really hard, but by doing it on a piece of paper, the, the government doesn't come into your bank account and says, well, this is now ours too. So it's an important thing to have. With regard to the relatives or the nearest of anyone who has a palliative care diagnosis, uh, it is a very emotional journey you're going to be on. Um, it is the journey of your other half, but you are along with them in the boat, so to speak. Okay. You're not the one who's, whose sand is running out of the hourglass, but you are tragically watching that sand go through the hourglass with greater awareness. And to, it is, enormously difficult to imagine being in that situation, but to look for shorter term victories. We made it through this hour. We made it through this day. You are not in pain today. We could make it to another three days. We've had a week with you. We didn't expect that. We had a good week. You saw your friends, you ate your favorite pie. You see what I mean? But bringing it to smaller victories, or smaller, smaller accomplishments or smaller shared positive experiences, okay? Uh, 
you got the favorite flowers you liked, you know, you've got the, arranged your funeral the way you wanted it, you know the music that you're gonna play, we've got the soundtrack. These are things that you can help somebody on that journey with, but to be an open sounding board and just to be open to discuss things and to acknowledge that this hurts, but let's make it the best we can for you and for me to take it forward. Any parting thoughts or advice that you have for our listeners, our men, and their, their supportive other halves? Just to have open and honest discussions about your feelings and to start your own network and to speak to blokes on a regular basis on social matters to begin with. Build social friendships to start off with. Thank you, Dr. Afik. It was a pleasure having you talk Thank about you such difficult topics for many people, but such enlightening, um, open, and really creative ways to look at grief and even hopeful ways to look at palliative care um, in the sense that you're, you're making it a better way for someone to choose to, to have the last days of their lives um, lived and experienced. Yeah. And, and that gives hope, I think, more than it takes away. So thank you for the wonderful work that you do. No, we're, like I said, we here in palliative care, guys and girls that I know of, we're here to fight for you to the very end. And we'll do so with all our knowledge, skill, and ability. All right? Perfect. Pleasure speaking to you, Reham. Likewise. All the men well. All the best. Join us for our next episode of the Genuine Men's Chat Show podcast and Zoom Live. Share, like, and follow the Genuine Men's Chat on YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter, and Facebook. Join the Genuine Men's Chat Facebook group to, uh, to speak with other men uh, and have this discussion with them um, about grief and other topics that we've covered. And remember our motto for 2020 is many men, many conversations. Have you taken your seat at the table yet? See you next time.